You think you know how this story goes. Good versus evil. Dark versus light. But turn those expectations on their head, and you're left with something fantastically captivating and wholly original. Welcome to the Fantasy End, where we share our love for all things fantasy and discuss the broader speculative fiction industry. I'm your host, Travis Tippins. This week's interview is with author C.S. Picat. Her latest novel, Dark Rise, kicks off her incredible young adult fantasy trilogy and releases September 28th. Kat and I discuss writing queer normative worlds, pushing back against and reimagining the classics, and the story behind that infamous Captive Prince announcement of 2019. And now, let's get to the good part. Welcome to the Fantasy End, Kat. It's so great to have you here on the podcast. It's so great to be here. Thank you, Travis. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, uh, one thing I always kind of like to ask people at the start of these interviews is just, can you remember what made you fall in love with fantasy? Uh, actually, it, uh, it's kind of a heavy answer, but um, my father died uh, when I was about five. And uh, I was left in a, a situation that I guess was violent, to put it mildly. Um, and I think when you're a kid in that kind of world, you really crave to escape and there's nowhere further to escape than into another world. But I think something that also kind of happens in that situation is the outside world, outside of the house, the so-called normal world, where you're pretending to be normal, uh, starts to seem kind of thin and fake, actually. Whereas the kind of life and death, gods and monsters, struggles of fantasy maps almost a little bit better to your own experiences, feels a little bit more real. And so you can imagine how interested I was in, I don't know, kind of a contemporary realism novel, like a, like a Jonathan Franzen where a man opens a fridge and looks in and contemplates the mundanity of his suburban existence or whatever it is, unless that fridge door is going to lead me out to Narnia, <laughs> out of the house, <laughs> um, I was not so interested. But I, I think a lot of people do or are attracted to fantasy for similar reasons. It's an escape, but it's also a a way to experience some of the, the bigger emotions, the bigger life issues without any of the constraints of realism. Uh, you've said before that you had a hard time finding queer characters in the books that you read growing up, so that you'd even reread those stories multiple times. Uh, and I was just wondering, could you share what some of those memorable characters and stories were for you? Yeah, I sure can, especially since there were so so few. Um, but I grew up in sort of the late 80s to early 90s, and especially in fantasy and sci-fi, um, there were almost no queer stories. So the first one that I stumbled across was a book called Magic's Porn by Mercedes Lackey, which was actually written in 1989. And I think it's, even now might feel slightly ahead of its time, but for the, for the late 80s was just absolutely mind-blowing. And it's a, a story about a young gay boy growing up to be, well, the most powerful mage in all the lands and also the most beautiful mage in all the lands. <laughs> but uh, it wasn't even a primary romance story. It really was a pure hero's journey that followed him across three books, his rise to power and the way that he then went on to save the kingdom. And for me, it was completely mind-blowing. It was the first time I'd actually ever read a gay character in, in anything. I had no idea that I would find him when I picked up the book. I just picked it up. I think I was 12 or 13 maybe, and I picked it up because it had a horse on the cover. <laughs> and I liked horse books at that age. And it was full of tropes that my 12-year-old heart just adored. I remember that he had silver eyes and people were constantly saying things to him like, silver eyes, rare and beautiful. But that character just meant a lot. I felt a kind of electric connection to him that I hadn't felt to any character previously. And at the time, I didn't understand it's because I was seeing a version of myself for the first time. And then the second of, th of really three um, were the Vampire uh, Chronicles by Anne Rice. There was the main character Lestat who was bisexual and the way that Rice wrote queerness in those books has been incredibly formative to me ever since because it was so 
normal. No one seemed to blink at it. Lestat just had this attitude of, well, of course I'm bisexual. I'm the most amazing person in the whole world. Why wouldn't I enjoy the delights, <laughs> every delight that I can find in life? Um, kind of similar to uh, the sexuality of Oberyn Martell from the Game of Thrones TV series. But again, I'd never really seen a queer character that was so so powerful and positively portrayed, interestingly portrayed. And then the third was a series of, actually, this is actually not fantasy, but it was historical fiction, the Alexander Trilogy by Mary Renault, uh, which follows the exploits of Alexander the Great on his rise um, to empire and is very matter-of-fact about his queer sexuality. But he has a really beautiful romance with his historical lover, Hephaestion, in the first book, and that was my trinity. <laughs> that was sort of what there was. But um, it's been really lovely to see an explosion of different representation across fantasy in the last couple of years. Yeah, it really does feel like it's been an explosion. And I don't know if that's just my awareness of it growing, but it feels like almost every book I pick up now in fantasy is gay. And that's wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> I saw a list that was floating around that was like 70 LGBTQ books coming out this fall. <laughs> and I, I had a really nice feeling about how far we've come. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, and that's one thing I feel like that's sort of consistent with a lot of people I've talked to is that they were worried that the stories they were trying to tell wouldn't be accepted. And they happened to start writing at a time where that's starting to become not the norm, but at least a lot more accepted. And I'm glad that there's some commercial success for it. Agreed. And I think I think the more stories, the easier it becomes for people to kind of vision a path for new different types of stories. So the more, the more. Okay, so something that I am curious to ask you about is what was it like getting your start as a writer of a serialized story on LiveJournal? I think I just barely <laughs> missed the time where I would have been into LiveJournal. <laughs> um, yeah, I think LiveJournal was then swallowed up by Wattpad, which was then swallowed up by, I'm not sure what the next big platform is for serialized fiction. But back in the day, <laughs> we used to serialize on LiveJournal. I, um, I was one of those people, exactly as you describe, I had a story that I wanted to tell, which was a fantasy with a gay romance. And there was nothing like it on commercial shelves at that time. And so my assumption was, well, this is not a book. It's just a story. But I had seen people writing in the online space similar types of stories. I was really influenced by a couple of LGBT web serials, um, web comics that I'd seen. There was the world of fan fiction kind of happening over to the left. And I thought, oh, this is a story that's an online serial. That's where you tell this kind of story. So I started to post on LiveJournal. And the book had the trajectory, I think, of a lot of things that become viral, which was a kind of very slow, very small increase in readership over time uh, that suddenly crested into kind of popular consciousness or more mainstream consciousness as it grew in popularity, kind of like suddenly in season two, everyone's talking about Game of Thrones. So it was about a book and a half worth of content before the book took off. But when it did, it really took off. I ended up self-publishing and then being approached by a New York agent who said, I think we can sell this book to a big six publisher in New York, which I didn't believe. But the self-pub version was hitting kind of number one across categories and it went on to be published um, and then hit, start hitting lists. But if uh, there was kind of one or two things that I think that experience really taught me that I really try to hold on to now that I'm following a, a kind of commercial publishing model one is just that imaginative freedom that you allow yourself when you're writing anonymously or at least pseudonymously in the online space where it really just doesn't matter. You're not trying to please any particular audience and you're fearless. Um, you're not worried about what people are going to think. So you're prepared to be a lot more vulnerable, um, holding myself open in the same way with my name and face attached is much tougher emotionally. But because I have, I'm lucky enough to have the, had the memory of that experience, I can try and keep myself open in that way that I was. And then I think the second thing that it really taught me was how to write in communication with an audience, 
when you're writing a serial online, you really get immediate feedback and a, a real sense of what people are responding to kind of live. And I was simultaneously doing a lot of kind of creative writing workshops. I don't, I don't, I'm not sure about America, but here in Australia, like, people are really taught to write these kind of literary short stories that they themselves would never read in a million years. So I was realizing like, oh, there's no shame in writing something that people really wish to read. <laughs> That's actually a, an aspirational state. I should be writing what I would like to read. So uh, on the note of like interesting starts for writing as well. So you're writing, you went from the serialized adult fantasy to sports romance comics to epic fantasy for young adults, which is a really <laughs> impressive range. Uh, is there anything that switching between all these different audiences and mediums has taught you about writing that you maybe wouldn't have learned otherwise? I think every time you switch to a different writing form, you do learn something. So there's been a huge amount of, of lessons and things that I can carry from one format to another. So just to give one example, when I made the move to comics, as you know from comics, you write a script, you write the dialogue, and you also write little descriptions, I guess, for each panel in the comic. And one way that, for example, comic is different than a film is a film has continuous action. You're just you know, watching the visual unfold from beginning to end. In a comic, there's the illusion of continuous action that's created from, say, six panels on a page, uh, and the reader fills in the gap uh, in their mind. And I think in a novel, you kind of fool yourself into thinking it's like a film, that the action is continuous, but actually it's more like a comic. You're choosing a series of discrete visuals, and then the reader is intuiting a larger scene from that. So once I'd had the experience of, of writing a comic, it really changed the way I started to think about crafting visuals in a scene, uh, in a novel. A comic was forcing me to pick out what are the six key visual moments in this scene uh, that are the most dynamic, uh, that are the ones that really need to be expressed to the reader. And when I was thinking that way in novels as well, it just gave me a better in to creating a visual moment what's the iconic visual imagery here and what are the, the key moments that I want the reader to quote unquote see. Yeah, I know uh, from moving from the Captive Prince trilogy to me reading Dark Rise, I noticed like immediately, I don't know if it was chapter one or chapter two or so, but like we're with Will in the shipyard and it felt very visual. Oh, that's, that's really interesting. I mean, Captive Prince is published exactly as it had appeared on live journal. So in a way, it, you're watching me learn to write in real time <laughs> when you read that series. Um, <laughs> so, you know, around about the two thirds mark of book one, I learned how to do a B plot and Captain Prince suddenly has a B plot. <laughs> um, and um, you can kind of see me pick up techniques across that trilogy. Whereas I, I did come to Dark Rise um, with a lot more experience. Yeah, and uh, not only a lot more experience, but I think I saw the uh, Dark Rise has kind of been in the works for a while for you, right? It's been 15 odd years, something like that. Yeah, it's the first idea for a book that I ever had. And I, I knew when I had it that I didn't have the toolbox to write it, that I was going to need to learn how to write a novel before I even tried to write Dark Rise. I told myself I would write a practice novel first. <laughs> and that practice novel <laughs> became Captive Prince. And I, I actually think I did the right thing. You know, some books are just more difficult to write than others. Certain things jack up the difficulty. More viewpoints is more difficult. More characters is more difficult. Certain structures are more difficult than others. And so Dark Rise was definitely a challenge. But once I started writing it, yeah. It was fun to extend myself. Yeah, I love that. Uh, that's an interesting theme that I feel like I, I keep coming back to with the people that I talk to on this podcast is that a lot of times the stories that they really wanted to tell, they they wrote other things first because uh, they didn't think that, like, I guess their uh, writing chops were up to the level of their imagination at the time. Yeah. And the first book is always the hardest because you're teaching yourself how to write a book at the same time that you're writing the book. And I think the bandwidth that simply teaching yourself how to write a book takes up means that sometimes the book itself, you know, you're using 80% 
on learning. <laughs> You've only got 20% <laughs> left for the book itself. So I do think kind of often those harder, bigger books, you do want to wait a little bit in order to write them, which is not to say that some people don't come out of the gate with astonishing debuts. But for me, at least, there are books definitely that I'll have to wait before I attempt. And I mean, yeah, uh, I'm very humble here. I think Captive Prince has a very rabid audience um, or devoted audience, I guess is a better way of saying that. Um, and so I think you might have landed in that uh, group with your debut as well. <laughs> Thanks, Travis. <laughs> <laughs> Um, okay, so I, I do want to dig into Dark Rise, but before we get there, uh, I did just see a video you posted on Instagram not too long ago showing off your timed safe you use to lock away your electronics <laughs> when you're working. Uh, so how did that start? Hmm. How helpful has it been? And how the hell do you manage that? Your willpower is impressive. Well, people are constantly arguing about whether or not the internet is a force for good or um, is it harmful to us. But at the end of the day, when I'm on my deathbed, I'm not going to look back and think, gee, I wish I'd spent more time on the internet. Um, <laughs> so, uh, but also in my professional life, um, I really came to realize that one of the most important tools that a writer has is concentration, their ability to just sit down and concentrate on abstract concepts for hours and hours at a time uninterrupted. And I was getting this constant attentional tug from the internet. Um, oh, maybe you should refresh your feed. Maybe you should look at this. Someone's just emailed you. Someone's just messaged you. Here's an alert. Um, and every time one of those would break into my writing day or even when I was finding something that I was writing difficult, the temptation to look away from the work, away from the problem, to go to a, an easy place of internet dopamine hit was always there. You know, I think I'd already put in place like a lot of different systems to try and keep myself offline. For example, I don't own a, a smartphone. I don't own a mobile phone. And um, I've really noticed that, uh, you know, five years ago when I didn't have a mobile phone, people would say to me, like, you're crazy. How can you not have a mobile phone? The last two to three <laughs> years, people have started to say to me, gee, I wish I didn't have a phone. I think something has really shifted in the online space that is a lot to do with the algorithm's ability to keep you online, whether you want to be there or not. <laughs> Um, just to dangle that little enticement in front of you that just keeps you scrolling 20, 30 minutes, an hour longer than you intended, and you just lose time. So it's because I don't have willpower that I have to <laughs> use things like a time lock safe. So I bought a safe that I put all my devices into at the beginning of the day, and it locks for, you set the timer, it locks for six to eight hours, however long you put it in and it will not open until the timer goes off. I found it interesting that actually the company that makes this safe originally made it for food. Like when you want to, <laughs> when you want to hide a snack, you don't want to eat the whole bag of chips or whatever. So you put it into the safe and it will only release eight hours later. It's just interesting to me that they swiftly pivoted to electronics because I think a lot of people are starting to feel the way that a lot of the platforms online are just eroding their time and concentration. Mm, and I, I don't think that has been helped by this past year where a lot of people were only able to socialize online. And right. I think that sort of had a bit of the same effect as like when you're locked in a room with someone for a long amount of time, no matter how much you like them, you'll start to get on each other's nerves. So multiply that by the internet. Yeah, I heard, and I can't remember, it was a CEO of one of the platforms uh, and they're talking about the attentional economy, you know, the idea that they sell advertisements to us. They want to keep us scrolling so that they can sell us ads. But there's so much competition in that space that they, they were saying they ideally need us to be on at least two platforms at once. So on Netflix and on Twitter. <laughs> um, and when I heard that, a chill went down my spine because actually they've succeeded in making me do that in the past. So yeah, so that's why I do implement such drastic measures to protect my, my writing time. Yeah. So I'm curious, do you, you write longhand or how, how do you avoid the internet with that? Do you have like a non-internet connected computer? I have a non-internet connected computer. I tend to write notes longhand, but I do write manuscripts. 
um, on my computer. But yes, it it's locked away from the internet. Or I just throw my modem into the safe. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Uh, that's that's goals to aspire to right there. Yeah, it's pretty nice to have a you know an offline evening where you you're just reading a book or listening to a track or um, uh, having a hot drink and in your thoughts. Okay, so. In your interview with The Guardian, I think it was last year, uh, but time is fake, you spoke about how <laughs> genre fiction is where myth-making happens nowadays. So expanding on that further, I'd love to hear your thoughts on the importance of these kinds of stories. That's, it's interesting. I just heard an interview with one of your great American intellectuals, Tahanezi Coates, who also is the writer of Black Panther. And he was talking about the symbolic importance of Obama as president what he meant as a symbol of, of hope and as an aspirational symbol to many and also as a symbol of kind of backlash to others. But he said if Obama was so important, what was the meaning of all of the white presidents that had come before him? But he went on to say that as a, a journalist writing about race issues, he's never received such vitriolic and intense feedback as he did when he started to write comics. <laughs> um, and it's because people really care about heroes. They really mean something to us. Heroes tell us who we should aspire to. They talk to us about who we view as important or as even human, whose views we should accept and whose we should dismiss. And We've moved on from a period where we get our heroes from the classics or from history even, and the place where myth-making really happens now is in genre fiction. You know, we've replaced Hercules with Harry Potter. We've replaced, I don't know, the, even the great um, – I, I know that America often mythologizes its presidents, but probably more people have a working knowledge of the Marvel hero pantheon. And so – we're in a process of cultural production where we're producing those characters. And I think it's important that we're producing characters that can speak to all of us and that can allow us all to aspire, that can give us all a sense that we have a heroic self. I was really influenced by a comment I heard a writer called Juno Diaz make where he, he said, um, in myths we often hear that we often have this concept that monsters can't see themselves in the mirror, like a vampire can't see itself in the mirror. But that, in fact, not being able to see yourself makes you feel like a monster. It's more the other way around. And that's, that's certainly been my experience. Like when you look around and you don't see anyone like you and you, you feel isolated and nothing in the wider culture is reflecting you, you start to feel monstrous or wrong or villainous or just not like a hero. So I think, you know, genre fiction is critically important and its role as, as kind of our, our myth-making form can't be underestimated. Yeah, I, I agree wholeheartedly. And I think that kind of goes back to our point that we were talking about earlier where there is so much more diversity, I feel like, in the genre fiction that we have now. Uh, it's cliche to say, but I really do feel like we're kind of in a golden age of science fiction and fantasy at the moment. I couldn't agree more. It's really heartening to see. I'm just so excited to see what the generation that's growing up with these kinds of stories, what stories they themselves will go on to produce. I know that when I started out trying to write fantasy and sci-fi, it was difficult to imagine that a book like mine could be published. And in a way, it was difficult to even let myself imagine those kinds of stories because I hadn't really seen them before. So I love the idea that we've got a generation coming up now that will be free to imagine themselves however they want and that will kind of build on this starting point that we've got now and take the genre who knows where. And so, okay, we have mentioned it a little bit, but I know the main reason you're here today is to discuss Dark Rise. So do you have a pitch for us? <laughs> so I'm absolutely terrible at pitching. <laughs> I had this experience when I was pitching one of my first books where I pitch okay on paper, but pitching verbally uh, is really difficult. And we had a publisher ready to sign on the dotted line. And then they got on a call with me and said, so just, just um, give us the verbal pitch. And I did that. Oh, and no. you know, when you <laughs> 
You know when you you you, you just know, see the other person kind of dying inside while you're talking, and then um, at that point they pulled out of the deal. My agent called me and she said, "What on earth did you say to them?" I said, "Nothing. Oh, I just no. I just said the pitch. I just said the plot." And she said. What exactly did you say? <laughs> and so I told her exactly what I said. She said, never say that again. And she said, um, if anyone ever asks you the pitch for your book, here's what you need to say. The plot is that it's awesome, <laughs> which I thought was a really good lesson. Um, but with that huge um, disclaimer in the front, here is the plot of Dark Rise. This is a book that... Um, in a lot of ways is an homage to a lot of the classic fantasy that I read when I was growing up. Lord of the Rings, those big battles between good and evil where everything is on the line. But Dark Rise is a book where nothing is as it seems. So I wanted to take one of those classic fantasy stories and then just drastically destabilize it so that the reader is kind of white knuckling it like, oh my God, what is going to happen? So it begins with the idea that there was once a, a magical world that uh, the heroes and villains of that world are trying to return that's kind of sparking an ancient war back into life. But as I said, things don't quite go as you may imagine. Yeah, I, I think that's a good way to put it. And I know that was one thing that really stood out for me is Dark Rise really is an interesting mix of the classic premise of good versus evil, dark versus light. But at the same time, I had no idea where the story would go next at any <laughs> given moment. Uh, so right. I mean, how, how did you balance that? You know, that mix of the familiar and the what the hell is going to happen next? <laughs> um, I grew up reading Tolkien and one of the well, first of all, through the 90s and even into the early 2000s, he was just such the dominant influence across all of fantasy. And the first writer that I saw take him on in a way that they didn't collapse under the weight of his influence was George R. R. Martin um, with Game of Thrones. And it was because he wrote that book, not following in the footsteps of Tolkien, but fitting himself into the negative space around Tolkien. What if the past was not like a bucolic pastoral fantasy, but instead was kind of like life was short, hard and brutal? What if the hero wasn't destined to win, but instead there was just kind of a chaotic chance as to who would come out on top? And you could see that he's really reacting against Tolkien while still being influenced by him in, in that series. And for me, I think one of the things that I pushing back against in Tolkien was that weird, not weird, but that biological determinism that he has where like an elf will mm. always be good and an orc will always be evil. But I was very interested in, but what if an orc could do a heroic act and what if an elf could betray you? And so my approach in Dark Rise was obviously in order to start to destabilize those concepts in an interesting way. First, you have to build them. And I gained a lot of respect for those classic writers as I tried to build something that felt simple but classic in that old style. And so having built it, then I started to play around with it. That was my approach. First build and then pull out the rug. <laughs> Quite effectively, too. Uh, there was multiple rug pulls throughout the story, which I always enjoy. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so one of the common threads I feel like throughout most of your work is writing queer normative worlds or at least queer normative bubbles surrounding the main characters. So why is this so important to you? Uh, I, uh, I grew up in this era where, well, as we discussed, first of all, there were very few queer stories, but those there were followed a very similar pattern, which was that you were gay, uh, you came out traumatically, uh, then you were destined to live your life on the one fringes of social acceptability until at the end you tragically die. Even the books that I love that I've name-checked, like Magic's Porn um, by Mercedes Lackey, still kind of followed that mould. And what I noticed was that it was so embedded in our understanding of what it was to be queer was that what it was to be queer was to be oppressed and that writers who were writing fantasy worlds would import that system of oppression even across fantasy worlds. So there could be dragons, things could be radically different socially, we could have different social systems, but of course 
gay people would always be oppressed. <laughs> and I think it's just a failure of imagination. Stories where it was just normal to be gay hadn't really been told much before. And so these are, I think, writers that just either made active choices or just didn't think that there might be another way of doing things. But I felt like it was important to imagine spaces that were queer normative where being gay didn't mean necessarily that you would be punished or that you would be oppressed and that we didn't have this feeling that like oppression for the LGBT community was going to be, you know, transhistoric, transcultural, and even across fantasy worlds. Um, so that's something that I try and do in, in all my books, really, from Captive Prince, even through Fence and into Dark Rise as well. Yeah, I, I forget exactly where you said this before, but you said something along the lines of stories as escapism versus realism and the importance of each. And I really feel like for a, a genre so known for its escapism, that fantasy could definitely uh, used to be a little more escapist for more people. Right. That's it. Exactly. Um, and I, I do think that if the purpose of the story is realism, then documenting the oppressions as they really exist is really important. But if the purpose of the story is escapism, then shouldn't all people have the right to escape equally? At least that's uh, my approach. Um, so I don't want to close the door to, for example, a queer person where any other type of person can have a power fantasy in this universe. But if you're queer, you're going to encounter oppression here just as you might in your daily life at home. I, I think some of that goes back to, as I said, when I was growing up, I, I did turn to fantasy as a place to escape. And I would not have wanted the problems that dogged me in those early days to follow me into my into my reading life as well. Yeah, absolutely. So on a slightly different note, I can't help but to notice that you have an amazing sense of fashion. And between <laughs> Captive Prince and Dark Rise, you have a knack for setting your stories and the time periods with the best clothes. Uh, so I'm curious, uh, on the note of Dark Rise, what about 1820s English fashion appeals to you? Um, I do love clothes. I just adore fashion. I think it's just such an amazing way to express oneself. I think, you know, you can't necessarily change your features, but you can change uh, your clothes. You can become a different person. I, I really love the chameleonic aspect of that. But when it comes to books, yeah, I, um, I like to craft visuals for characters. One of the many reasons that I chose, for example, fencing as a sport for my comic Fence to focus on was that it has just such an amazing aesthetic um, that's partly to do with those um, white uniforms that they wear. In Dark Rise, I set my book in the 1820s, well, I must say for multiple reasons, Travis, not only the clothes. But, um, <laughs> well, okay, yes. I didn't mean to imply it was only the clothes, well, but it's definitely um, in, a part. <laughs> in fact, um, it was definitely a part. Um, I wanted to set the book at a time, it's actually right before the explosion of industrialization in England. So trains, it's set in 1821. The first train kind of is invented in 1824 or five, I think. Um, and then everything changes across Europe. I like the kind of fin de siècle quality of that, that the, the idea of a world ending. But there, <laughs> men had fantastic fashion in that period. And um, I thought I was all the way home there. But then women's dresses in 1821, it's not a great time. I, I would say it's like the 1980s <laughs> of the 1800s, you know. It's just, it's the period where you look back and you're like, oh, well, this is, um, this is kind of a dark spot. They had um, kind of the puff sleeves and the extremely cinched in waists and then the balloon skirts, you know, impossible to move around in, made it very difficult to um, have my heroine do really anything in the book because without changing clothes. <laughs> um, but it was a good, um, I guess it was a good insight into some of the actual constricts of that women would have faced in, in the time. But I ended up making one of my two heroines just wear boys clothes um, because it, <laughs> it was easier and um, more visually appealing as well. Yeah. I mean, again, I guess we're coming back to the importance of clothing here. It really does inform a lot in writing in the real world. Yeah, that's exactly right. And yeah, it's very hard to go adventuring in a hoop skirt. Yeah, okay, so 
the clothing is definitely a very visual thing. And so something that interests me about your research process for Dark Rise, I saw a lot of really cool research photos on your Instagram. And you've said before that you can't really see pictures in your head. So I'm the same way. Uh, I definitely have aphantasia. But I've seen you kind of have a knack for taking lots of reference photos to use as uh, research for your writing. Yeah, I have to do that because um, I'm exactly like you. I can't see pictures in my head at all. If I close my eyes, I just see the back of my eyelids. As far as I know, I don't even dream in pictures, or if, if I do, I certainly don't remember the pictures afterwards. And so um, I'm really reliant on visual references when I write. So I do that in two ways. One, um, I will, if I have a, a scene or a room that I have to describe or a piece of clothing or what have you, I'll actively go out and try and find a reference. I'll draw the, the room layout or a castle layout or a, a town layout. Or in the case of Dark Rise, you know, I bought a lot of old maps from the 1820s um, so that I would know what the space looked like and then looked for a lot of contemporary visual paintings or uh, some older photographs so that I could describe things um, because I was looking at them. <laughs> um, and um, the other thing that I'll do is I like to try and stay open to visuals as I encounter them in my daily life, or I might do a little a kind of a research trip where I'll, I'll go and borrow a ton of art books from the library and just sit with them. Any cool visuals that I see, I'll, um, I'll try and spend a little bit of time, write a few sentences about the visuals, see if I can conjure what I see see on the page in words um, in my journal. That kind of gives me a little bank of visuals to draw from later if I need them as well. I'll already have written the sentences. <laughs> That's my workaround. But I, I think another type of research that I do, which is similar, I guess, is um, I guess it's like a, it's experiential research. I guess it's like the method acting of research where I try and do <laughs> the same thing that the character is doing. Um, so if, for example, if my character is very tall, I might stand up on a chair and have a look around and just see what's, what's different about things from that perspective. Or I recently had a scene in Dark Rise where someone gets stabbed in the shoulder and um, obviously I had no idea what that was like. Please tell me you didn't stab yourself in the shoulder. Please tell me <laughs> no, I, <laughs> I bought a shoulder of lamb <laughs> and a really good knife <laughs> and I stabbed the lamb <laughs> just to um, try and understand, um, you know, what the resistance feels like, what the experience feels like while trying to imagine that I was a, a character in that situation and then write down as well as the visuals, the feelings I had, the experiences that I had with that. In Dark Rise, I, I traveled to a ton of places all across England to the locations where I was setting the book. I was very dismayed that one of my key, uh, I spent so long with material from the 1800s that when I turned up to London, one of my key locations had an Amazon warehouse building built right on top of it. <laughs> um, but, um, but yeah, to try and kind of stand in the space and imagine from there. And I, I think I'm more reliant on those kind of active research methods because I can't see pictures. How, how, do, you, how do you find it? Um, I don't know. So I guess for the most part, for me, it's more experience as a reader than as a writer. Although there was, uh, when I've written before, there is definitely a lot of, well, I think that like shirts would be this color or something. And then I mostly just skip any and all description, um, <laughs> which is not, not a way to write good stories, I'm sure. But yeah, as a reader, I, I don't really picture things in my head. Like it's, it's just the words on the page or more often the audio in my ears. But yeah, I, I don't know. It, it's hard because I don't really know what I'm missing out. I'm sure you're the same way where I, I don't know any other way to experience a story. Right. It's much more an experience of feelings and kind of a knowingness of the story rather than seeing the story. Mm -hmm. I had an interesting conversation with a friend really who's like very, very visual. And they said that it takes them a lot longer to read a book because they're so bogged down in visual processing. They have to kind of get into every scene, see the visual almost look around mentally before they can move on to the next sentence, which I also found fascinating. Yeah, that that is fascinating. I, I think I might be 
at least like a small degree of more visual than you because sometimes when there's description i'll try to be like okay this sounds interesting let's try to picture that and i will just sit there and try to figure out what that would look like i can maybe hold like two details in my head at once do you see like a blur or do you see just one uh, object or no that, that's why it, it's really hard for me to describe because it's not like it's a blurry picture because then i'd still be picturing the picture just blurry wow what are words uh, <laughs> but i think an interesting way that uh kind of like a thought experiment i read online was that like imagine that someone takes a ball and rolls it across the table and then like picture that now what was the person wearing what did the table look like what color was the ball <laughs> i cannot answer any wow. of those questions <laughs> No, I only receive the anecdote as information. So I, I know yep. that the, a person rolled a ball across a table, but it, it comes with no visuals at all. Yeah. And I've had people tell me like, oh, they're in this pub down the street. Like this was playing wow. over the jukebox. And I'm like, wow, that's, that's, yeah, that's not me. That's, yeah, that's incredible. Okay. So I think you touched on this a little bit earlier, but so I recently had the pleasure of speaking with, I think, one of your writerly acquaintances, Shelley Parker Chan, on the podcast a while back. And they said that you had given them the best writing advice they'd ever received, which was more or less write what you love the most. So to turn that back on you, what are the things that you love the most that you were able to work into Dark Rise? I do this um, mental exercise every time that I start writing a book, which is to think about the book that I really want to read. And I think everyone has that book. You know, you walk into a bookshop, you walk into a library, and there's something that you're looking for. And you might not be able to know exactly what it is, but you'd have some sense of it, what genre it is, how you want it to make you feel. And so for Dark Rise, I love classic fantasy. So I wanted an epic fantasy with with really powerful stakes. The whole world is on the line. But I also wanted really intense character relationships with very deep, intense, and even at times twisted backstories. I love the feeling of being transported, almost the, the feeling, that prickling feeling of awe that you can sometimes get when you read a book about magic, those moments. I wanted to try and conjure those. I love when a fantasy novel creates world building that feels iconic as though it's always existed, <laughs> as though, of course, there's the One Ring. <laughs> of course, there's Hogwarts. So I, I wanted to try for some iconic touchstone fantasy world building. And then on a smaller level, you know, I really love uh, certain tropes like um, an enemies to lovers storyline. Um, so I've thrown that in. I really love when a character is not quite what they seem on the surface. Um, so a lot of my characters do have that quality. I love things like a sword fight, high octane escapism, you know, um, chases, escapes, people with immense power that they don't know how to control people with destinies that they have to fight against, all of these types of things. I tend to, as well as sketching out the book that I want to read, I'll also just write a list of all the things I love like that and start thinking about which ones I, I want to include and, and then what's the most exciting version of them that I can put into the book. Yeah, well, I will say as a reader, if that was your list going into Dark Rise, all of those things made it in there in spades. I'm so happy to hear that. Yeah, I mean, and also, apart from anything else, it just makes the book so much fun to write because you're you're constantly writing things that excite you, things that you're in love with. Yeah, and I mean, why write if you don't love what you're writing, right? I, I mean, there's a select few people out there who are just absolutely rolling in the money. But I think most writers, passion has to carry you through to a certain extent. I agree, but it's actually surprising how easy it is to get led away from what you like into what you think you should be writing or what you think, oh, maybe this works better. Maybe I'm slightly embarrassed about what I like, so I don't, I don't want to include it. Is this too exposing? All those things can make you turn away from your actual loves. But I think I learned also 
you know, when I was serializing captive prints that it was the things that were most electric to me that I was often the most afraid of as well. You know, oh, is this, is this cringe? Is this embarrassing? Is this too exposing? But those were always the things that readers would light up the most when I did include them. So if something is powerful to you, it's going to be powerful to someone else as well. Yeah, well, speaking as someone who decided, you know, maybe I'll read the first couple chapters of Captive Prince to kind of get a better background before we have this conversation and then had finished King's Rising three days later, <laughs> uh, I definitely think you're onto something. Um, yeah, that one, um, I think especially because it was written as serial fiction and, you know, when you're writing an online serial, you're trying to get people to come back month after month <laughs> to keep reading. So... It is a bit of a page turner, I think. Okay, well, uh, looking forward a little bit, do you have any upcoming projects that you can talk about? I can give three hints. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so there is a secret Captive Prince project in the works. There is an upcoming fence announcement. <laughs> and there is a, a new project all I can say about it is that, hmm, it's returning to one of my great loves and it's in a format that I've never worked in before. You had those ready to go. That's all exciting hints right there. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's the most I can, I can say about any of those things. <laughs> um, I know so that... Uh, Secret Captive Prince project. Is that the infamous uh, teaser that you had on social media like two years ago now? It's the infamous news. Um, and um, <laughs> yeah, that was a case where um, everything was ready to go. And the teaser, I released a teaser and then um, 2020 hit and everything was delayed for about two and a half years. <laughs> I mean, yeah, there's there's a couple of little world events that might have uh, delayed that, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. Well, fantastic. I cannot wait for all of those. Um, and I guess given the nature of how time works and when we're recording this, some of those may or may not be secret at the time that people are listening to this. Oh, yeah. Um, my, hopefully, fingers crossed, at least one of those will have been revealed. Ah, fantastic. Well, lucky listeners, you know more than me at this point. Um <laughs> Okay, so I also always like to ask people, are there any good books that you've read recently that you can recommend? Um, yes, I'd love to recommend some books. So pro I just recently finished probably one of my favorite books in the last maybe five years, which is not fantasy, although it does have a fantastical element. It's called The Sympathizer by Viet Tan Nguyen. And I, I think it it won, was it the Pulitzer Prize a couple of years ago? It's um, about a double agent working in the Vietnam War. But it's absolutely enthralling. And um, one of those books that's just really blown my mind, like, oh, this is the true power and possibility of a novel. It's kind of expanded my horizons in that regard. The second thing is that I just read the first edition of, or the first issue um, of the new Superman run, Superman, Son of Kal-El by Tom Taylor. Probably also by the time this podcast is released, people will have read enough of this run to understand why I'm just so excited about it. This is a Superman that's going to blow everyone's minds. <laughs> and so I really just recommend that everyone jumps on board from issue one and follows this series through to the end. And then the third book that I will name check is a book called Only a Monster by Vanessa Len. It's not out yet. I've actually just read the an advanced reader copy of it. It's a young adult fantasy. It's set in uh, London, but it's about, well, the tagline is only a monster can kill a hero. And it's just got so many themes that I love. It's really playing with the idea of who is a hero and who is a villain. Uh, what does it mean to be made a monster in a story? And the world building is fresh. I haven't really read a book like that in the YA genre before. So just something for everyone to keep on their radar or go out and pre-order, only a monster. And you say you're not good at verbally pitching stories. <laughs> other, other people's stories, fine. 
<laughs> um, okay, so one way I always like to close out these interviews is just asking you, what is something that you're excited about right now? I saw um, <laughs> I saw a YouTube ad for some product. <laughs> I can't even remember what the product was, <laughs> but um, but the tone of the ad um, was like, um, as we emerge from COVID and start our new life. And um, you, you remember in 2020 when all the ads were like, now that we're all in this together in COVID. <laughs> yep, so yep. it was the first shift in advertising where they were no longer advertising to my pandemic self. They were advertising to this, my, my new self <laughs> that could emerge out into the new world. <laughs> so I'm, um, I, I think I'm just very excited for uh, the possibility that we of us all kind of coming out of, um, out of the pandemic together. We've had a really tough series of lockdowns um, here in Australia to sort of get to and stay at COVID zero, but then we've had a very long drawn out vaccine rollout. So glimpsing that light at the end of the tunnel is so amazing. And I'm just, I just want to go towards that light. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Interesting choice of phrasing, but yes, absolutely. Kind of the opposite of what I have over here in the American South, where very rapid vaccine rollout, but uh, basically no lockdowns ever. Wow. That must have been terrifying. A little bit. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's always fun uh, to go on a road trip somewhere to try to like, you know, camp, spend some time outdoors and then stop for gas and have to wonder, is it more or less dangerous to wear my mask inside this store? <gasps> oh, my goodness. Wow. That's like... um. <laughs> That's, uh, yeah, that's hard to, hard to imagine. Yeah. Well, I mean, hopefully America, I mean, America should be so proud of their vaccine rollout. Um, you guys have done amazing. So hopefully you'll be moving past all of that soon. Yeah. Here's hoping that that's the thing that I'm looking forward to, shall we say? Yeah. Is everyone just giving the same answer to that question these days? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I mean, yeah, for the most part, uh, COVID ending, book releasing, those are probably the two things I hear the most, understandably. Yeah, yeah. that's the big two. Well, Kat, I think that's everything I have for you today. This has been so much fun. Thank you for taking the time to come on the podcast. Thanks so much, Travis. This was so much fun. Absolutely. You can find C.S. Pacat on Twitter and Instagram as C.S. Pacat or at our website, cspacat.com. Dark Rise absolutely blew me away. Come for the classic setup, stay for the twists and sexual tension. As always, you can find us over at thefantasyin.com or click the invite in the show notes to join our Discord server. If you enjoyed this interview, consider supporting us on Patreon. We've got exclusive episodes, video interviews, and more. Or take a minute of your time to leave us a review online. It means the world. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to the show so you can catch all our future episodes. That's all for this week. Until next time.